Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The History Channel Original Podcast. You've probably heard of William Wrigley. Maybe you've heard of his gum. So wherever you go, carry a pack of Wrigley Spearmint gum. Wrigley Spearmint. Or his Chicago Cubs. More than a century ago, no one had heard of William Wrigley. In the late 1800s, Wrigley was just a Chicago businessman making a living as a soap salesman. But now, he's remembered as a magnate of baseball, the owner of a California island, and most notably, the founder of a gum empire. This is The Food That Built America, stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll tell the unexpected story of chewing gum, tracing William Wrigley's humble beginnings to the rise of his gum empire that would, at one point, sell a third of all chewing gum on the planet. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Before Wrigley's name would wind up on countless buildings, products, and a famous baseball stadium, he was just a driven businessman with a reputation. William Wrigley is an interesting character. That's Jennifer Matthews, author and anthropologist. He's the eldest of nine children born in Philadelphia. And from a very young age, he was considered high-spirited and a bit of a troublemaker. Wrigley's father was a successful manufacturer of soap. Wrigley liked working with his dad, liked selling soap for his dad. Joan Mattern wrote the book William Wrigley Jr., Wrigley's chewing gum founder. As she says, Wrigley was born in 1861. By the time he was a young teenager, he was walking the streets of Philadelphia peddling soap from a cart, and he did really well. Unfortunately, Wrigley was not as successful in school, and then at one point he ran away to New York City, and he was selling newspapers on the streets, which was a very, very hard thing to do in those days. New York City was very rough, and he ended up sleeping on a park bench with his unsold newspapers, keeping him warm. So he returned to Philadelphia and tried school again. And then he got kicked out. So he started working in his dad's soap warehouse. By the time he was 14, he had a new idea. Become a traveling soap salesman. And he does this for about four years and then decides that he wants to go west and to go mine gold and silver. So he gets on a train with a friend and about halfway across the country, he loses his train ticket, and they kick him off in Kansas City. And knowing no one there, he settles in Kansas City, and he works in restaurants, and he sells rubber stamps as a kind of side business, and then decides once again that he's going to return to Pennsylvania and work for his father's soap factory again. That's the way things went for Wrigley for the first part of his life. 
His path wasn't just circular. Wrigley adopted something of a devil-may-care, improvisational approach to life. I think he was a bit of a troublemaker, but also that's what I think made him such a successful businessman ultimately. One of the upshots of the Industrial Revolution was a shift in philosophy surrounding failure. Failed business didn't brand you for life. You could pick yourself up and try again. So when he was 30 years old, Wrigley went to Chicago to strike out on his own and open his own soap business. And when he starts up this new business, he offers shopkeepers incentives for buying the product. An incentive. It's kind of like a freebie. An extra lip gloss when you buy shampoo, for example. This was kind of a trend at the time. So Wrigley offered baking powder as a premium with the soap. But then people loved the baking powder, so he pivoted and made that his main product. But then he needed a premium to accompany the baking powder. So as Joan Mattern says, a thought popped into his head. So he got the idea to include two sticks of gum with every order of baking powder. So he started offering paraffin wax gum as an incentive. This wasn't quite the gum we buy in packs today. This paraffin wax gum was sweet, but not very chewy. And it would lose its flavor very quickly. But people really liked it. And pretty soon he realized that history was repeating itself and people liked the gum more than they liked the baking powder. And that's what pushed Wrigley into becoming the chewing gum magnet. And so he jumped ship to becoming a gum salesman. Now, being a gum salesman might seem like a random choice. But as author and anthropologist Jennifer Matthews explains, gum chewing was seeing a little bit of a renaissance. Today, we tend to think of chewing gum as a confection. It's always found in the candy aisle, and we would think of it as something that you would use as a, a treat, um, whereas it served, I think, more practical purposes at different periods of time. Right. It's only kind of true that chewing gum is a modern phenomenon. Really, people have been chewing sticky substances for centuries all around the world. The ancient Greeks, for example, chewed a resin from the mastic tree to freshen their breath. Early Europeans chewed birch tar for sore throats. And the Mayans and Aztecs used chicle, a resin extracted from the sapodilla tree hundreds of years ago. But starting in the late 1800s, people started mostly chewing the hardened sap from spruce trees. But the spruce tree had its own issues. The barch tree gum, it's very aromatic when you first start chewing it, but it just gets crumbly and it, it kind of loses its flavor. And then the paraffin wax, it only gives you a, a few moments of, of chewing before it really just starts to crumble. Nevertheless, people continued chewing it. The spruce tree gum really continues into the 20th century, but it becomes kind of an old-fashioned chewing gum by the time we get to the 20th century. But the spruce sap phenomenon wouldn't last long, thankfully. Along came the Industrial Revolution. After the Civil War, Americans could travel coast to coast on transcontinental railway lines for the first time. We saw physical and metaphorical unification, and we saw new inventions like the typewriter and the telephone. There were new factories all over, and there was suddenly a big need for rubber, particularly for machine bands and tires for bikes and later for cars. So came the idea to chew, well, rubber. It all started with a Mexican general named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. He wanted to see if he could use chicle, that sticky substance Mayans and Aztecs used to chew, in place of rubber in those industrial settings. 
food historian Jason Liebig says there was a big push to find something that was rubbery, but wasn't actually rubber. What they were trying to do is create synthetic rubber, which was sort of the philosopher's stone of the rubber industry, trying to come up with a way to create this artificially, synthetically, or any alternatives. Because the rubber tree was a very specific resource, it was limited, and there was a lot of value as post-industrial revolution, this was being used a lot. And so they tried to make everything. They tried to make tires with chickle, they tried to make rubber boots with chickle, they tried to do all these things made out of rubber. General Santa Ana's search for synthetic rubber didn't exactly revolutionize the manufacturing industry, but it did give way to a major gum breakthrough. That's because of an inventor named Thomas Adams. Like Santa Ana, he saw the promise in chicle. He had $30,000 worth of raw chicle sitting in a warehouse, and he needed to do something with it. He had originally tried to use it to make tires and then rubber boots, but nothing worked. And then one day in 1869, Adams got a new idea. What if people could chew it? That's how he got the idea to boil and purify it. Boiling it allowed Adams to remove the impurities and then knead it into a dough-like consistency. Gone were crumbly, flavorless gums. And in with the chewy gum we know today. This chicle, it would become what we know today as chiclets. And it's very much an invention of the Americas that spreads across the world to the consternation of a lot of Europeans in particular who thought it was a really nasty habit. Even though the Europeans found it uncouth, everyone else seemed to love it. So at the time that Wrigley comes into the picture, Thomas Adams is already established as a a major businessman. And um, Adams gum is already a very successful product. Remember, Adams was making his breakthrough when Wrigley wasn't even 10 years old. So by the time Wrigley got into this game in the 1890s, he had some catching up to do. Back in Chicago, Wrigley saw what was going on, and he knew how much everybody loved his early gum incentives. And he decided he wanted in, in a bigger way. And so he's looking to go up against a very large company who's had great success. um, And he's doing it as somebody who has zero experience in the chewing gum industry. So he partnered with a company, Zeno Gum, and sought to expand it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wrigley went off trying to figure out what would sell. Part of that quest? Looking for the perfect flavor. Now, at the time, the people really liked grape, lemon, and most of all, peppermint. Matthews again. 
the default flavor of the day was peppermint. Most housewives were making peppermint candies at home. They would commonly produce recipes in the newspapers and magazines at the time. People had liked peppermint for thousands of years, actually. But peppermint is very strong and very stringent. Wrigley knew about a different type of mint. When he was a kid, he'd go swimming near his grandparents' house outside Philadelphia. Spearmint grew everywhere, so the kids would shove it in their pockets and then chew on it after dinner to cleanse their palates. Spearmint had that minty taste, but less than 1% menthol. It was a lot more palatable. Spearmint is a milder flavor, and he felt that they would be able to chew spearmint gum for a longer period of time. And so he really wanted to push the idea of spearmint as a new flavor. The smell reminded Wrigley of those salad days, or I should say spearmint days, and it pushed him to start tinkering and landing on a pretty unique alternative in 1893. Spearmint gum. Wake up to flavor. It would end up being his signature product, but the people weren't all that into it yet. Too new. Plus, the market was pretty cornered with different inventors, with their different gums. Wrigley's invention almost went unnoticed. But Wrigley could see the big picture, and he, he believed in the product, and he stuck with it, and eventually Spearmint became the most popular flavor that he offered. The flavor gained popularity over the next decade. By 1910, it was the top-selling gum in the U.S. So yeah, Wrigley was, was definitely ahead of the game introducing the Spearmint gum. Wrigley was tossed another curveball, though, when competition became even more fierce. You see, gum companies were basically consolidating left and right. Thomas Adams and his chiclet based gum still reigned supreme. And then, in 1899, American Chiclet Company was formed. This was known informally as the Chewing Gum Trust. And his initial market valuation, in modern money, was $280 million. The trust, a conglomerate, put a lot of small companies out of business. Wrigley, on the other hand, was just one company. But Wrigley didn't want to be part of a bigger corporation. Even if Wrigley's spearmint did taste good, there were too many other options on the market. In order to compete with American Chiclet all by himself, he needed to expand. And Wrigley said, we need to have our fruit-flavored gum. Liebig again. And they came out with their second major flavor, Juicy Fruit. It's a citrus-based flavored gum. The flavoring of gums are trade secrets, and so it's very difficult to figure out what exactly went into the flavoring, but it's basically a citrus-based gum. I can still go out and get a pack today, and it's one of my favorites. So now he had two gum flavors, one minty, one citrusy, to compete with the big company. But he had to get the word out. So Wrigley, he was really trying to break into a market that already had other competitors in it. And one of the ways he decided to push through, other than just his actual product and his flavors, was with advertising. And he wasn't just advertising. He was spending a ton of money betting big. So Wrigley used to say that the art of salesmanship could be summed up in five words, believing something and convincing others. Wrigley plastered the city of Chicago with advertisements for both Spearmint and Juicy Fruit. 
The ads showed packs of gum in bright red letters, Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. The ads included little slogans like, the perfect gum and for every taste. He took out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans at a time when people weren't doing that to, to try to saturate the market. Remember that industrial revolution I mentioned? It meant people were on trains, moving, consuming ads. Wrigley used billboards in a big way. He had huge billboards. He would advertise on the side of buildings. He would erect huge signs. And he did this in cities all over America, Chicago, New York, all the major cities. Wrigley wanted a poster on every trolley car, every billboard, and sometimes didn't really work out. He really first started to try to hit New York City. And it was such a huge market that even though he had poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into this effort, it really fell on deaf ears. He kind of went back and licked his wounds and took out another massive amount of money to put this ad campaign together again. He learned his lesson, target smaller markets first. So Wrigley was so determined to make his gum known all over the nation that he conducted what was the first million-dollar ad campaign around 1908, and that's a million dollars in 1908 money, which is a lot more now. To Wrigley, it seemed worth it. But Wrigley was all in. The experiment worked. Word got out, and his success began to rise. So I think... The credit that we need to give William Wrigley in the world of advertising is that he really emphasized simplicity with a clear message and a consistent message. Keep hitting them with what your product is in a simple and accessible way. And I think that that really changed the landscape of advertising in the 20th century. Over the next decade, sales were $170,000 in 1907 and climbed to over $3 million by 1910. By 1929, revenues topped 29 million, more than 487 million today. And in turn, he became the king of gum, all because he gave some away to pay for a soap business. Who knew? William Wrigley's instincts were right. He rode the wave, then rode it to the very top. He made money and became a captain of industry. And his ventures didn't stop with gum. By the time William Wrigley died, his estate was worth over $150 million. And he diversified a lot of this in, in different interests. Uh, he was a lifelong baseball fan, and so he bought in uh, shares to the uh, uh, Chicago Cubs baseball team. He also bought much of Catalina Island off the coast of California, and he developed that in different ways. He produced a casino and lots of tourism, but he also developed things like a botanical garden. He believed that it was important to have nature conservancies and to preserve the natural beauty of the island. And then he had mansions all over the United States, including in Palm Desert, uh, Arizona, and then, of course, Chicago, where he was based. All because he took a risk. And he wasn't afraid to bet big on a new idea. So to me, I find him inspiring because he wasn't afraid to fail. So Wrigley's legacy really has to be, yes, he may have not invented gum, but he revolutionized how it was sold, made it mainstream, and made it a thing that everybody is still doing today. If you like this podcast, 
then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch the Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. And fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 